Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sosodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to be with you again. Oh, and today we have a guest, a man who needs no introduction because, hey, Raj, it's you. <laughs> today, we're going to talk about you and your new book, Awaken. And that will be our our topic today. And as we begin this discussion, one little joke. I used to introduce Raj, and I used to always make fun of this fact that he was a in some Hall of Fame of Guru of Marketing thing. <laughs> and I would always say, "Oh, and how often <laughs> do I get to introduce a Guru of Marketing in the Hall of Fame?" And um, only to read in the book. That Raj was sort of, you know, sort of sheepish about that introduction. And here I was doing it for years. Raj Shasodia, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Timothy. I'm glad to be here. All of me today. <laughs> yes, all of you. And that is going to be a major theme as we go through the book. So, Raj, this week, you know, we're gonna we're gonna break up the the story of the book because I think it's worth telling both from a personal point of view and for in a sense, how this played out in the conscious capitalism movement. So this week, we're going to focus a little bit more on the personal side of the journey and the book and its impact on your personal development in awakening. And then next time, we'll talk about how that's manifested itself in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, that sounds good. Look forward to it. All right, let's dive in. But I thought I would start with some of the basics, Raj. You know, why write this book? now why write the book and why now yeah you know it's kind of uh i'm gonna be 65 this year uh and it's it's kind of a taking stock I think. you don't look it of course i just want you to know you don't look 65. <laughs> thank you uh, zoom <laughs> zoom filters will do wonders the seeds of this were really planted the year i turned 60. and that was a moment of of deep reflection and looking back and trying to make sense and taking stock of life uh you know in a way it's kind of like uh entering the third act right if you think about most movies and plays there are three acts right and yeah. if you want to think about a human life is about 90 years if you're lucky uh, this is the third act and uh, for me it was really about taking stock looking back trying to make sense of what seemed like a pretty weird life and a lot of you know uh, unusual things that had happened along the way seemingly random things uh, but but in 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 uh, in going on that journey, I discovered it wasn't so random. That there was a method to this madness. That there was a pattern, as we say, you can connect the dots looking back on your life, yeah. and everything yeah. started to make sense, you know. And and the things kind of fell into place for me. It was like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle suddenly meshing, and and yeah. also then helping point the way to the future. Like what now? What next? You know, in this third act. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the way you say it, it sounds like it was a very smooth journey. However, having been with you for part of that journey, I know it wasn't always so smooth, uh, the writing of the book, that is. And um, so I'm just curious, what parts were the hardest to write for you? When you came down to, I'm going to write my story and my awakening, because that's the name of the book, yeah, what yeah. parts were really the hardest to write? Well, uh, so first of all, the process that I used was interesting. And it came to me when I was listening to a podcast with David Sedaris, the author. Uh, and mm -hmm. um, when he's writing a new book, as he's writing it, he does readings of the book. You know, he'll go out and assemble a group of people and read segments of the book, you know, just to kind of get a sense of how it's landing, what the uh, reactions are, you know, what works, what doesn't work, etc. And I know that comedians do this, right? When they're trying to create a new act, they'll take it on the road and they'll test it out and they'll fine-tune fine it and so forth. And so I decided to uh, invite a group of my friends to join me on Sundays for about 90 minutes. And the idea would be that I would read one new chapter every Sunday uh, to them. And it was also, in your language, Timothy, a forcing function. It would force mm -hmm. me to have a readable chapter ready every week. You know, at the beginning, I had two or three or four already done, but soon I had to pretty much create as I was going every week and not be embarrassed, you know, by it, mm -hmm. right? So it had to be mm -hmm. decent enough. Uh, so that that was, uh, you know, within literally, I started on January 20th, and by April or so, I had 16 chapters written, you know? And uh, so it was really a great way to get that going. So in a way, the book flowed easily. Because it was really a matter of mining and uh, tapping into my memories, and yep. um, and writing about that, and that 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 came pretty naturally to me. However, some of those memories were very painful, and it was about reliving certain traumatic times in my life. Some in my childhood, uh, some in my mostly, I would say, in my early adulthood, uh, between yep. me and my father, that happened at the family uh, level, which we can talk about, which were incredibly painful. And even traumatic, you know, I had episodes mm -hmm. with my father that were deeply traumatic, and one that I literally my my you know my mind erased that memory because it was so traumatic, and it take took me decades to heal from those traumas, and and I thought I had had you know transcended them by now, but as I wrote about them and relived them, it all came back. I experienced mm -hmm. a lot of physical pain. I experienced a lot of, uh, you know, emotional pain, of course, but even other symptoms, you know, headaches and insomnia, and as I said, body aches and and you know, back 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 pain yep. and all kinds of things that that mm. do show up. I've come to recognize the mind body connection is incredibly powerful, and it all just show up in your body. As I say, the body keeps the score, and all these memories yep. are in my body, you know. So so that was uh, definitely a painful. So I, I the way I say this was simultaneously the easiest and the hardest book to write mm. of all the books mm. that I've written. Yeah, yeah. I love that process of, of reading it out to people and the incredible vulnerability. I mean, it's hard for any author to read a work in process. Wow, reading it out loud when it's about you and you're sort of unveiling the curtain, that's a gutsy process. And, and what did you learn yeah. from just doing it that way? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I invited people who had been part of my journey to some degree, uh, who knew me well, who cared about me. Uh, and and therefore, it was, you know, in that sense, a very supportive audience. You know, it was almost like therapy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, group therapy. And uh, 
very loving uh, energy that that I received from that. And there's also very brilliant people. So, you know, great mm-hmm. insights as well that came out of it. So yeah. it definitely helped me, you know, in the process. So it's, it's, a, it's a process that I recommend, especially for something very personal like this. I yeah. think it, it's, it's a good way to do it. Well, you touched on connecting the dots. And um, in a sense, it's a way of integrating parts of your life, I suppose. And I, I, I guess as you did that, what were a couple places where you connected the dots in a new way that you might not have done if you hadn't been writing this book? Well, it was part of it was writing the book. Um, and part of it was the experiences that led up to me writing the book, right? Starting when I turned 60 and I, mm-hmm. all the reflection that I did and all the experiences that I opened myself up to. You know, that, that year that I was turning 60, I was writing the healing organization. That was yeah. in front of me as my project. Mm-hmm. And I had the entire summer black, uh, blocked out for writing retreats. You know, that's the normal way that I've written books is I go away for a week or two weeks at a time alone or in some cases with a co-author if I have that and uh, and just really get it done in that intense period. And I was all set to do that. But then four women told me the same thing pretty much. Mm. They said, Raj, you're writing a book about healing. What about your own healing? And I said, well, I don't yeah. have time for that. I've got a book deadline here. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, I think I'm okay, you know. Last time I looked, I don't feel like I need healing. They said, no, we know you. Everybody needs healing, especially you. And mm. uh, you need to slow down. I'm always rushing from one project to the next. I mean, literally, I've had times when one book is coming out and it's next week I'm on a writing retreat for the next book, you know. Yeah. It's, it's I don't yeah. know, some kind of frenzied sense of urgency, almost a panicked sense of urgency mm. was what I was living with all those years. Yeah that somehow time is running out and I have to do this. And I think I was also, in a way, running away from my own life into this mm. as a refuge. And so they said, you need to slow yeah. down. You need to be with yourself. You need to be in silence, be in nature, you know, look within, etc. And, and unfortunately, I had the good sense to listen to these women who I respect a lot. A lot. Uh, Lynn Twist was one of them. Uh, Nilima Abhat, my co-author yeah. on Shakti Leadership, was another. Yeah. Uh, my coach, uh, and then another person, another friend as well. And uh, I, I delayed the book by five months. And then mm-hmm. I had, I said yes to things I had already turned down, like going to the Himalayas on a Shakti leadership uh, spiritual journey. You know, Nilima organizes these journeys around the world. Yeah. About yeah. 10 days, going to a deeply spiritual place and reflecting on the wisdom of that place and also the framework of Shakti leadership. And this was a trip up to Ladakh, which is uh, near the Tibet and in India and China border where Tibet is. And this is the seat of the deepest Buddhist wisdom in the world. And so we visited mm. a lot of those Buddhist monasteries and immersed ourselves in that. And there's a lot, Buddhism has a lot to say about, about healing and about suffering. Uh, mm. I also said yes to a silent retreat in upstate New York um, at a place called Peace Village where there were people like Peter Senge and David Cooperider and other people I really looked up to in the world of work. And I was going to be able to spend four days in silence with them and about 35 other people. So I said yes to that. And it was an incredible experience. You know, when you make space for silence in your life so much that you normally are blocked off from starts coming through. And I was receiving downloads. I still have the notebook over there. When I had 45 yeah. pages of notes from that silent retreat, wow. just things coming to me, wow. Uh, wow. including a wow. framework for this book, you know, and the realization that I, I think I need to write another book about all this. 
I worked with a coach for the first time and I also said yes to uh, going on a trip to the Amazon with Lynn uh, Twist and the Pachamama mm -hmm. Alliance, a 10-day trip deep into mm -hmm. Ecuador to be with two different yeah. indigenous peoples there. And and so, and, and, and more significantly, I also said yes to uh, some consciousness-altering experiences. You know, mm -hmm. a friend of mine, when she heard that I was writing about healing, she said, you should come to me, come with me on a plant journey. You know, this is incredibly yeah. healing. And I had no idea what she yeah. was talking about. I thought she meant we're going to eat some potted plants or some nice organic vegetables, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice green said, smoothie. Yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's healing, but that's kind of a slow process. I said, that's fine. You know, when I trust people, I kind of go along, you know, and I said, yeah, I trust you. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say yes. That turned out to be an incredibly powerful experience of, of actually a psychedelic. And, and that's where, going back to your question now, the first time I did that, I was shown a movie of my childhood, in a way, in my mind. Mm. And yep. a narrated, you know, like a documentary of me being there as a baby and a young child and my mother's, my grandfather's there and my aunts and uncles and, and, and just the whole environment and what was going on and what it was like and how toxic and abusive it was uh, mm. in every respect, you know, towards the women, towards the workers, towards, you know, it was just incredibly abusive. And the one of the insights that came that night to me was, that I had to experience the worst of the toxic masculine energy, the hyper patriarchal feudal uh, system that I was born into, that I needed to experience that as a young child mm -hmm. and as a teenager later, so that 55 years later, I would write a book about the feminine, right? That the, the book would not have happened. I would not have had the, the sensitivity, sensibility to see those things, like other people see those yeah. and they don't see any pattern there. So in a way, yep. it kind of started connecting those kinds of dots, right? This is what happened in your life. You were born to these kinds of parents. You were born into this kind of a culture. You had these kinds of experiences, etc. Yep. So that yep. 30 years, 20 years, 50, 50 years later, you would be then able to bring something into the world that otherwise would not have manifested. So there's a yep. gift in every one of those experiences that I started to see that everything that happens can be used in a way yep. to make something meaningful out of it, right? And and that's one yep. of the principles that I came to me in that silent retreat, choose your life. Everything that happened, mm -hmm. even the most painful thing, you know, can serve you. It can actually be part yep. of your growth and evolution or you remain a victim if you say, oh God, why, why did this happen to me? Why did I have such mm -hmm. a harsh father? Why was I born into this kind of a culture? Then you remain a victim. But when you say, wow, that was interesting what happened to me and there's something in there, there's, there's always something to mine you know, in, in any of those experiences. Well, I love that. And um, I want to talk, dig a little deeper on that, because I think in the book, you talk about a couple of different uh, experiences with some mind-altering circumstances. One, I think, is the one you were referring to, where there was the narrative. But there was also one that you had down in the Amazon, too, wasn't there? Wasn't that slightly different one? Yes. And tell us a little bit about, about that one, and how was it different? And and what did that mean to you coming out of that? Yeah, so, you know, I went to the Amazon because I talked to Lynn Twist uh, about healing. You know, for my book, I was interviewing a number of people. And the next day she called me and said, Raj, I had a dream last night. And the message was that you need to be on this trip. Mm -hmm. You're going to learn more about healing in these 10 days than you would in five years of research. Yeah. So she almost commanded me. <laughs> so you have to come. I said, okay. Um, said, How do you I'm respond saying, when somebody like that calls and said, I had you in a dream last night and yeah. you have to come on this trip? I mean, there's yeah, a call so, from the universe. <laughs> exactly. 
And so I said yes. And so the centerpiece of that 10-day trip, which was incredible, just you know, just from a, you know being immersed in nature and the rainforest and how spectacular mm. that is, and uh, you know what a deep experience that is. We were with two different indigenous people there, the Achuar and the Zapara, and we spent a few nights with each of them. And we had a variety of shamanic uh, healing experiences with tobacco and with water and mm. dream interpretations and you know deep hikes, you know, through the rainforest and all kinds of things. The mm. deep sort of appreciation for the fact that we are not only connected to nature, we are off nature, right? We don't come into this yeah. world, we come out of this world where every bit as much a part of nature as, as a tree or a, or a butterfly. Mm. And yet we have separated mm. ourselves with all the consequences that we have seen. We are literally killing our own mother. Yeah. There's a form of yeah. matricide going on here uh, between humans and the planet. And so that was a deep, uh, deep takeaway. But then the, the centerpiece was an ayahuasca experience. And having already done this a few months earlier, yeah. I was certainly open to that. And I knew it would be a different kind of experience. Ayahuasca is, is called the grandmother, uh, supposed to connect you to grandmother energy. There are some of these plants that, that bring you more father energy, apparently. I and mean, this one is about, about being connected to mother energy or grandmother energy and being connected to the, you know, to the mother earth. At the same time. Yeah. And it's also, you know, my intention was very clear. And that's why always very important in these experiences. You have to have an intention and you have to approach it in kind of a you know a sanctified way, right? You don't just yeah. do it recreationally to have something fun. And so I wanted to learn about healing for business, which is what the book I was writing at the time was about, but also healing for the world and healing for myself. And so that day was incredible. I mean, it started the night before, you know, with preparation. And then you wake up, you kind of fast, start fasting the evening before. And the morning we uh, uh, we divided into two groups and we went on a boat for about an hour and a half up this enormous river. And we picked up our shaman there. And then we went another hour or so. And then we hiked into the rainforest for a few hours. We came to wow. a sacred waterfall, as they call it. And there it was about cleansing and letting go. So you mm -hmm. strip yourself and you go into that water. Uh, they, first of all, they give you some tobacco, uh, uh, some water that has been soaked in tobacco leaves, right? So the shaman mm -hmm. is standing there next to the waterfall and he's got this liquid in his in his cupped palms and you snort it into your nostrils, right? So you can imagine that kind of pungent liquid going into your, into your head, Ooh. through your nose. It's kind of like a little mini explosion in there. <laughs> yeah, and then you walk through that curtain of the waterfall is a small waterfall. We walk through that curtain and then there's yeah. a ledge behind you, just a natural ledge formed there. And yeah. you sit there and yeah. reflect on what you need to let go of. And then mm. you come out uh, and walk back up the hill uh, from that waterfall, uh, never looking back. The idea is don't turn around. You know, mm. fast as wow. And letting go. And then we yeah. hiked a few more hours back to the shaman's settlement. By this time, it was about uh, you know getting to be dusk. We were all sweaty and muddy, you can imagine, in the rainforest. We had brought a change of clothes, so we went and bathed in the river next to the settlement, changed our clothes, and then came just as the sun was setting and sat in a semicircle around the shaman. Now, he had been preparing this brew for the last two, three days. It takes days to do this, and it's an incredible thing, actually, if you think about the tens of thousands of plants that exist in the rainforest. Somewhere mm. along the way, thousands of years ago, Somebody figured out that if you take the leaves of this plant and the roots of this plant, and if you boil mm. them together for days, it creates this, this liquid, this brew, uh, that yeah. then has a monitoring effect on people. Right? It's amazing. It's really amazing. Out, right? Yeah. And so 
that brew had been prepared. And so we sat and they had these little <clears throat> earthen bowls. And he poured uh, some liquid into that and he, he whistled and he chanted and he blew into it and handed it to each of us and we took it. It's, it's pretty wild tasting. I mean, you know, not, not intolerable, but not pleasant by any means. And you drink that and then everybody takes theirs and then you go and they had laid out these banana leaves on the uh, on the mm -hmm. ground right on the play on the barren ground there um with a thin little pillow and a little sheet and you're lying there on these banana leaves as the sun is setting now that would be a lunar eclipse night Ooh. Uh, and you could see literally five or six planets lined up from horizon to horizon wow. and the stars were incredibly vivid it was a really surreal setting and you know and then after a while they there's Somebody whispered in my ear, is the plant with you? And I said, no, I'm not feeling anything yet. So then they escorted me back to the shaman. <laughs> Take a second dose here. Uh, some of us need more than others. Uh, then I went and lay back down. And then the shaman came around with his headgear and his, you know, his branch that he was holding. He was swishing it and whistling and chanting and blowing. And I looked up over. I could see him framed against that sky. And it was really surreal. And then, then I started to feel something. I started to enter an altered state. And wow. the first thing that happened, you know, I heard a baby crying in the distance because this was a little settlement, right? Uh, people yeah, lived there. Yeah. And so I heard a baby crying and, and something about that. Some, I, I had the feeling that I was lying in my mother's lap when I was a baby or a child again. Mm. And I just started crying. You know, I wow. just started, for the first time in my life, I cried without shame and without restraint. You know, normally mm -hmm. a man, you cry, is like, oh, well, you know, embarrassing. Let me stop that. Right? But I cried, just let myself, you know, cry. And, and the fact is that I had not been able to cry for decades before that. You know, there's something that happened early in my marriage that kind of got me emotionally shut down when I had tears and I was kind of told, you know, <laughs> men don't cry, right? And you know, What uh, kind of man are you anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of man cries, you know? And so I was completely emotionally blocked you know in those years people had died all kinds of sad things terrible things that happened i could not summon tears it doesn't matter what happened i would not cry right and suddenly here i was crying and i was letting out all of that grief you know grief with nowhere to go it's like you know nowhere to express um and i was able to express that grief you know for all the things the people who had passed the suffering that endured even my own children had endured I had endured many other people, you know, all kinds of sad things in the world. You know, yeah, I cried for my grandfather, yeah. I cried for my father, I cried for my children, for yeah. myself. You know, I don't know how long I cried. And there were two people there. They had all these people there to assist, right? So they were holding me. They took turns holding me. Ultimately, that I was cleansed and uh, mm. emptied of that, you know. And then I lay back down. And then the vision started coming, you know, and I'll just share a few of those. Um, you know, the one of those was, uh, I saw an image of a, a, a long line of people standing under the hot sun. It's like I'm being shown from above, right? Thousands of people, snaking long line. And at the end of that line is a tiny woman. And they're walking up to this woman and getting a hug, a long, tight hug, and then they walk away in tears. Mm -hmm. Having experienced unconditional love perhaps for the first time in their life from this stranger, this woman that they don't really know. Now, I recognized yeah. her as Amma. She's a real person from India. She's known as the Hugging Saint or Amma, which means mother. And she travels mm -hmm. all over the world. 
dispensing hugs. And people literally, she comes to Boston every summer and literally people stand in line. I, my friend Michael Gelb has received multiple hugs mm -hmm. from her. I've never done that, but I know about her, right? But what was the point of that? So I was shown that and then a voice says, all of these people who are standing in line, they could be hugging each other. That they don't need to wait and stand in line and get a hug from another person. That every human has the ability yeah. to help another human heal. That we are the cause of suffering for each other. Mm. We humans, most suffering, unnecessary suffering on this planet is caused by humans towards other humans and towards other life forms and towards the planet. But we are also the source of healing for each other. Yeah. Right? And so we could be finding that in the person next to us. Right? So that was, I thought, a pretty beautiful lesson. Um, yeah. The the centerpiece of that night, the most significant vision for me was, uh, you know, I started to see these words floating in my vision. And a voice mm -hmm. saying that this is what the world needs in order to heal. This is what business needs in order to heal. This is what all of us need in order to heal. And there were four letters that came and they formed themselves into a word. And the letters were L, I, S, and T, list. And as you know, I have a thing for acronyms. Right? I've got an acronym for everything. Slightly, slightly. <laughs> we, we wrote a book and every every one of the tenets had to have an acronym. <laughs> so I, I think I have to create very a new creative, version. Very creative, very creative. The AA, which is Alcoholics, uh, it's Acronyms Anonymous. <laughs> you know, I need to create yeah, 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 yeah. before I do that, you know. But this came as a preformed acronym and the four letters and then each, each came into uh, my vision mm. one by one. And the first one was love, right? Mm. The first word was love. That everything we do in life, in work, in business mm. should come from a place of love. Every action yep. should be rooted in love. Even the yep. hardest and harshest thing that we have to do, right? In mm. business, letting somebody go, you know, even in a war yep. or something right or whatever you know letting somebody die uh should come from love not anger not greed not fear if you think about a lot of business decisions come from greed they come from fear right mm. not from envy not from jealousy not from any of the other emotions everything should be rooted in love yeah and it's interesting you know when i started <clears throat> writing the healing organization i i had ordered chinese food once and the, the fortune cookie literally said there are many ways in which you can hurt there's only one way to heal and that is through love yeah. <laughs> and so Beautiful. that was a pretty profound message. The second word then was innocence. Mm. And the explanation was that we are all born innocent. We come into this world innocent, untainted in a way. And then we get corrupted by the ways of the world. Right? Mm. We get co-opted into the ways of the world. We learn to use our intelligence and our strength. Uh, in mm. order to dominate others, to climb over others, to take advantage of others, to win, right? And mm -hmm. have others lose, right? And we eventually may lie and cheat in order to get what we want, right? So we lose our in innocence. And that's probably part of growing up for all of us, right? Mm. But we're not condemned to stay there. We can, you know, as a child, you don't have a choice. You are born innocent and then things happen to you. You get corrupted. You don't even have a mm. choice. That, mm. Right? Mm. Then as a, as a mature adult, as a strong adult, mm. you do have a choice. You can choose to live with innocence. What does that mean? That you're not guilty of knowingly causing harm or suffering to another. Right? Unnecessary. Sometimes suffering exists in the world and you can't avoid it. Right? But unnecessary suffering you will not inflict on another. Mm. 
right? So yeah. living in that state of innocence, you know, if I think about, you know, some of the great leaders, you know, there's this there's kind of a childlike innocence to them, not childish, right? But they still mm. are connected to that, that purity of their soul, right? So I think that innocence is something. And interestingly, you know, my mother gave me the nickname Pappu when I was little. Uh, and that means innocent. That means I said the innocent one. That means simple. Somebody who's you know uncomplicated and innocent. And I used to hate that. You know, I said I want to be, you know I want to be raw. I want to be a person of the world, the ambitious kind. You know, as opposed yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah. my father would actually mock that. Right? He say, "Oh, you're too simple. You're too naive. Mm. You're too trusting. You're too idealistic. You're too innocent. The world will eat you alive." Mm. Right? Mm. Mm. So we were kind of told to be in a way corrupted. You know. But yeah. I think no. choosing to be innocent, it's not the helpless innocence of a baby. It is the strong innocence uh, on the other side of wholeness, the chosen innocence mm. of a strong adult, right? Yeah. Who chooses yeah. to live that way. Reminded of Ashoka, the emperor Ashoka, you know, when he had his final culminating battle in Kalinga, you know, and, and now ruled over an empire that was the largest in the world. And, you know, and suddenly he had this awakening. He said, my, what am I doing? You know, killing all these people, causing all this suffering just to feed my own ego. And in that instant, he chose innocence. He said, I will never harm another living being for the rest of my life. I will disband my yeah. army and create an army of missionaries to spread Buddhism. He, he became a Buddhist. He became a vegetarian. Yeah. He gave animals yeah. rights in his kingdom. No other you know, yeah. king in the history of the world. Did animals have rights? Yeah. You know, Etc. So I think there's yeah. that awakening to innocence. Which I think is is really you know a, a critical element here. That's a beautiful way of talking about the idea of innocence. I think that um, you know I was going to say, oh, the word corruption feels so strong because I'd also say that um, you know when we're young, we're we're trying to find this place of safety and this place of love. Yeah, and you know that's relative love in the world, and it's not always going to be there. And then we put on these these personas or these this armor that helps us survive yeah. through those periods when there isn't love and where there isn't security yes and you know it i don't know if it corrupts us per se but it's yeah. a survival mechanism that when we get older to your <laughs> point about awakening and healing in order to get on the other side of that you know part of the awakening yeah. process is realizing i can take that armor off I can go back to that tender innocence that was there as a baby and right. um, and not have to get into the word corruption, which was just my thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I, th I think that's an important point. So much of this is is self-protection, is, is being able to survive in a harsh world and deal with all of the traumatic and difficult, painful things that happen. Right? But then ultimately, we are able to be strong and Innocent at the same time, you know, as Martin Luther King said, tough-minded and tender-hearted at the same time. It's not yeah, either yeah, or. Yeah, right? How can we manifest yeah, that strength? How can we have those boundaries, right? Yeah. But remain loving and 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 uh, you know pure in that sense, right? And try to be yeah, yeah, yeah. to that. You know, it's kind of returning to something that is our birthright. This is where it, there's a quote from the I Ching that we use: "At the core of everyone, there dwells an innocent being, and all, you know, everything good comes from that." You know, if we can oh, go back to beautiful, I love that. Um, the third was simplicity. Mm -hmm. That we make yes. things too complex. You know, we we complicate yeah. things. We have these incredible brains, and we've done extraordinary things with our brains. 
but but we can make things too complicated and lose sight of what's really essential. You know, I'm reminded of that book. Mm-hmm. Everything you want you need to know, you learn in kindergarten or something like that. Remember the big bell back in the 80s? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. the fundamental truths are are simple, really, right? And so yeah. we need to, yeah. and, and one of my favorite quotes is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity mm-hmm. on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Yeah. Because right? yeah. when you really understand things, it becomes simple again, right? Mm-hmm. Einstein did incredibly complicated things, but ultimately he came to E equals MC square. Right? I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> simple equation, right? I mean, the the, the yeah. fundamental truths, the profound truths are, are, are quite simple, I believe. So how can we not yeah. get mired in the complexity how can we yeah. not be stuck in simplistic thinking, but how can we strive for the simplicity on the other side? You know? Yeah, beautifully um, put. Beautifully put. And the last one is truth. You know, what is our commitment to the truth? Truth is fundamental, right? It's uh, Gandhi's autobiography was called "My Experiments with Truth," and as mm. he said, truth is more fundamental than peace because without truth, there can be no peace. In South Africa, they had to have Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the end of mm. apartheid. That Desmond Tutu and Mandela mm. and others knew that was needed uh, before they move into the future, because otherwise there would have been a revenge-fueled civil war in that country. Because there were centuries mm. of oppression and suffering, uh, mm. and never been fully acknowledged. So this Truth and Reconciliation was about first acknowledging the truth, right, and and being willing to. Uh, atone of back forgiveness for it so that we can yeah. then yeah. Right? truth has to come first and that's you know I think an important lesson for us to learn this country so I think that is an yeah. important element commitment to the truth in, in life in business right and yeah. I got a PhD in marketing <laughs> where, where is the word truth right uh, in marketing very very hard to find right yeah. so uh, yeah. so that was the list and yeah. to me you know it it was an important message that came through me. I'm still trying to interpret that and apply mm-hmm. it in my life. How can we live with those pillars, mm-hmm. principles in mind? Make sure yeah. that we're coming from love, that we're connected to that purity you know, of our soul, that we yeah. see the bigger picture and what really matters, and that we have a fundamental commitment to the truth. And yeah. uh, so it has impacted me in many ways, also personal ways, you know, with my own son, for yeah. example. No. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's pull on the string with your son a little bit because, as I shared with you, one of the most moving parts of the book for me was the arc of relationship with your son, and so you brought him up just now and how the list has helped that. Can you say a little bit about that and 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 what that journey has been like for you? Yeah, so you know, I have a special needs son. His name is Alok. He's now thirty three years old. Uh, he was fine for the first few years, but then around the age of three, he started you know, developing signs of a variety of different issues that became pretty intense by the time he was uh, 10. And then even more intense after that, he had to be hospitalized many times. Uh, on quite a few medications. You know, there's lots of uh, effect, side effects of those medications, you know, and he can... You know, it's not an easy thing for any parent who has a special needs mm-hmm. child. In this case, he has two conditions, bipolar and pervasive developmental disorder. Uh, so it was very mm-hmm. hard. And, yeah. you know, as a parent, uh, you have certain hopes and dreams and aspirations. He was my first child. 
know, you think this is how it's going to be. And it turns out to be something very, very different. So there's a kind of mm. disappointment. There's a kind of grief. You know, there's a kind of coming mm. to accept what has, what is rather than what you had hoped for or what is normal, uh, so to speak. And so, and so for many years, you know, it was a it was a difficult thing. It was you know, uh, it was very overwhelming really to be able to mm. deal with his needs and do everything and you know he's hospitalized for multiple weeks at a time he had to be in special schools special therapy all kinds of things right and you never knew what would set him off so you know it was very hard and as a as a father i tried to do what i was supposed to do from a sense of duty and responsibility mm. but it always felt very heavy and felt like a burden and felt like a life sentence right because i have to look after him for his and not only for my whole life, but for his whole life, right? Yeah, and yeah. Set, set it up so that he will be okay. And overwhelming, because you don't know how this condition is going to evolve and so forth. So so I came to view him as a kind of, as I said, a responsibility, but really as, as a burden and as a restraint on me. Mm. That I can't really take a sabbatical and, you know, live in another country for a year, which is common in academia, because, you know, he's he can't do that. Uh, that we have all of these... Uh, our friends' children are graduating and getting engaged and having, you know, all the things that happen, mm. sources yeah. of joy that we, you know, we're not going to have all of that. So, I mean, I, I was kind of in that place of looking at myself and you know, yeah. as a victim yeah. of that yeah. circumstance and, 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 and treating him as a duty mm. uh, at best, you know, and a burden yeah. at, at times. Yeah. And, and always looking at my watch, how much more time do I need to do this before you know, he can go back to his group home or whatever it is, you know, doing what bare minimum way. And then one day, as I was writing about the list, and my partner Neha said to me, you know, she's come to know him. She said, do you realize that your son is the list? Mm. He embodies those four things more than any mm. other person you might find, you know, that he is incredibly wow. loving. Wow. He is incredibly affectionate, you know, yeah. at all times. He's very innocent, like a little child. Yeah. He keeps life very simple. If he has his basic needs, uh, his music, your games, you know, the food. Uh, he's the happiest one in the house, uh, usually. And he's incapable of telling a lie. Mm. He's simply not able to tell. So he is a, you know, he's a manifestation of this. And as I looked at him with those eyes now, I said, oh my God. You know, one of the chapters in my book is called Healing the Father Wound. Yeah. I had a very difficult relationship with my father and a deep set of wounds from that. And I realized in that instance, oh my God, my son also has a father wound. Mm. Mm. It's because of yeah. that my father never saw me or accepted me for who I was because I was so different from him. Yeah. And I never saw or accepted my son for who he is mm. because he's so different from me and my conception of what my son would be like. Yeah. I said, oh my God, he has a father wound. It's up to me now to try to heal that wound and start to see him as a gift. And not a burden to start to cherish yeah. my time with him, you know, to uh, experience joy and play. You know, he kind of gives out the inner child in us, you know. He mm. wants to play mm. video games, he wants to watch a Disney cartoon movie, you know, he wants to mm. you know, go on a trip with us, you know, etc. So he brings out that playful side, which, you know, all of us have that child, the inner child yeah. you know, gets better or suppressed, you know, we need to be in touch with that healthy energy of the, yeah. the inner child. And so, yeah. yeah, it's completely changed my relationship with him. 
Um, yeah. He is, you can see him blossoming now uh, compared to before because of that. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it's such a great gift, I know, for me and for him uh, uh, for this yeah. realization. To, you know, so I'm really, really grateful for that. Uh, and any other single thing coming out of this experience, you know, I think that's the one that yeah. really yeah. asks me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very touching part of the book. And it's interesting. You talk about your father. And of course, the book goes into the relationship between your father and your grandfather and you. And, um, you know, it brings up one of the arcs of the book that I sort of picked up on was this, um, I don't want to say it's an either or, but but sort of the polarity of ambition and love and your journey from that. And the ambition part, just to sort of set the scene, was, you know, your grandfather had sort of refounded the family's name in a sense and taken back uh, uh the the rightful place as a um of the family in in indian society and very ambitious worked very hard to do that um but was a pretty hard man and then you had your father who was this radical adventurer you know running off to north america and doing this and trying to get an education and um and yet his own way very very hard and uh, and then there was you so when you talk about that father wound you know and you read the book a lot that came up for me was the strength of that ambition you know the strength of that particular male ambition um and then the flow into love and and you know how and you know how do you deal with that today in terms of looking at those elements of your life and saying you know how do i how do i hold both of these yeah you know thank you for that observation you know if i think about the book it's really about five generations of fathers going back mm. to my great grandmother who was incredibly loving incredibly generous i never knew him but there are many stories about him you know yeah. he was incredibly altruistic anybody who need you know i come from a family of feudal sort of landlords right mm. uh, with titles and uh, 500 acres of land given by the king and and yeah. so it's kind of that kind of a, a setup so we were born into this this privilege and this you know coveted sort of position in the village a big house like a fort on the hill and you know got all this unearned respect and uh, deference mm. that people give to us but my great grandfather was an incredibly kind and you know unusually for that for that you know culture uh, altruistic uh, man and he would off you know he would literally give people anything that they needed you know all mm. they had to come and ask for and so of course some people took advantage of that and yeah. then over time he lost all of the ancestral lands they were mortgaged they were given away you know the whole thing was falling apart because he was all love mm. right and ambition his son grew up to be the opposite, extremely, mm. extremely focused on that, right? And in a way, he sidelined his own father. Normally, you have to wait until the father dies to take over mm. Mm. culture, right? But yeah. he sent my, 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 my great-grandfather was literally uh, looking after my father when my father went off to school in another town. So he was rented a house and he sent my grand, great-grandfather there, you go look after my son, I'll, I'll take care of the village over here. And so my mm -hmm. grandfather worked mightily. I mean, 20 hours a day, you know, he just rebuilt the whole thing, got all the land, acquired more land. He imported tractors from Russia and Czechoslovakia. And, you know, he mm -hmm. became the first sort of mechanized farmer in the region. And he was elected as the head of that way. He built roads. I and mean, he was just like a you know, legendary figure in that whole region. Yeah. Uh, 
but hard as nails you know extremely mm. hard you know, so i remember one episode one story about him was that he used to go in the night to patrol the uh, the jungle you know because we had all these valuable trees this chandan mm. uh, tree which people cut away at night so he would go there to patrol because people would come and try to steal things and he would be with a gun right wow. every night yeah. and once he accidentally shot himself in the forearm here right and a bullet went inside yeah. right and all he did was he finally he took some piece of metal he took the bullet out and they wrapped it up in some kind of rags and you know that was it <laughs> you know, that yeah. so we could yeah. still see that that wound you know so that was him incredibly hard yeah right and then uh, you know he had 13 children mm. you know, six of them died in childhood mm. or you know at birth six of them survived and there was a 13th one that we can talk about later if you want but my father was the second oldest and my father was also incredibly ambitious my father was ambitious beyond just you know securing a place in the village and continuing what had already existed you know he was brilliant mm. uh, uh, academically and uh, you know insisted and against my grandfather's objections went out and got an education and you know bachelor's and masters and phd and getting a gold medal at every level and being the best student and you know he was on on a trajectory to be really a, a world changing scientist in a way Uh, mm. so he had all that ambition that's why i had this childhood where we lived in barbados and california and canada and then later on in africa and other places because of my father's ambition and his work. but both my father and my grandfather as you said they came from this pure ambition and drive right it was all mm. about achievement and striving right? yeah. and yeah. you were only as valuable as what you do and what yeah. you create right and there was no love there was zero love in that house whatever love there was apparent love was was conditional love yeah. right if you yeah. did what the patriarch the father wanted what what the father commanded mm. uh, then you were loved in a sense right you were in yeah. you were given yeah. uh, benefits and fruits or whatever money money was really the way you know money was weaponized in our family you know money was the way to express love and to withhold love mm. right and the father controlled all of it right the, 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 the even the adult sons into their 40s and 50s had no control of their own finances and so that was what i saw and what i experienced on my father's side right yeah. all ambition all striving and no love on my mother's side you know her father was also a kind of patriarch but he was uh, he was kind of like my great grandfather incredibly loving yeah uh, not at all ambitious he just wanted to enjoy his life you know mm. all the and privilege that he had and you know he was kind of an epicurean and he would uh, like a chef and he would distill these uh, incredible liquors and he would cook this western food and you know yeah. he had all of that but no striving yeah. at all yeah. you know uh in you know just living off the inherited land and wealth and so on the one hand i had incredible ambition no love on the other hand incredible love but no ambition yeah right and yeah. so my mother came out of that and so i got that from her you know incredible she was uncapure love Mm. never asking for anything for herself just just serving and taking care of others on my father's side pure ambition and drive yeah and and most of us feel like we have to choose yeah it's one or the other right but what we have learned and this is where polarity mapping and that whole approach also is very valuable is you if you pursue either of those you will end up with neither mm. if you're all about ambition yeah no love right then ultimately you won't even achieve much and whatever you achieve will fall apart and that's true in my grandfather's case the entire house is now ruins mm. right uh, you know and uh, you know nobody's really doing anything significant there 
But likewise, on the other side, when there was love and no ambition, that also has fallen apart. You know, that's also in ruins. Yeah. Right. And so ultimately, the challenge is for how can we get the best of both, the healthy aspects of ambition with the healthy aspects of, of being loving? Yeah. There's an unhealthy aspect of loving too, right? Which you can yeah. tolerate. You're, you're, you're so uh, forgiving of everything that you never have. You know, you don't have that tough love. Yeah. You're incapable of tough love. You're only capable of sort of the giving, you know, the, the uh, yeah. Giving yeah. in kind of love, right? And on the other side, the healthy ambition versus getting then blinded by ambition, right? So how do you stay with healthy ambition on behalf of something important yeah. in the world, not just on behalf of your own, you know, property and prestige and so forth, right? So I think that that to me is the combination. The other way I phrase it is that it's about my father had great personal power, as did my grandfather. Yeah. Right. I mean, they were men who mattered in the world. They were they evoked a fear and respect out there uh, but they had no love mm -hmm. and on my mother's side was pure unconditional love but no power yeah disempowered yeah. love and then power without any the other side right and i think the challenge and the opportunity for us how can we integrate those two things to me the holy grail is how can you manifest personal power and ambition on behalf of something worthy in the world yeah and from a place of love Right, yeah. combination of those two things, I think, is is to me the holy grail, and that's really blending the healthy masculine and the healthy feminine as well. Yeah. And in my case, I was given very, very stark. Father <laughs> had zero feminine energy. My mother had zero masculine energy. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was given these almost pure templates, right, of what can happen with the uh, the positive and the negatives of each of those, right, on on that side. Uh, but I think that's you know that was their journey in this lifetime. But the way to uh, honor that is to say, what do we take away from that? The most beautiful parts of speech. My father had many incredible qualities. You know, he was a rare human being. Yeah. Uh, do I take those positives, but not, you know, not go into the uh, get sucked into those negatives? Yeah, I love that. And of course, at the end of the book, you you sort of lay out seven or eight core principles. One of which is to be a peaceful warrior for truth and love. And, you know, I think that's sort of part of this. How do you blend ambition and love, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, in my case, I come from the warrior caste. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a caste system and the four my primary caste are the Brahmins who are the priests and they sort of the intellectuals and then the warrior caste, which is us. And then there's the traders and then there's the so-called untouchables. Right. Uh, one of the worst things about India, I believe, is this, this system of stratification that you're born into and very few can transcend. Uh, and so I was born into that kind of a feudal warrior caste mentality. And, you know, if you go back to what is the dharma, as we say in India, what is the dharma of the Rajputs? So I come from the particular sect of the warriors called the Rajputs, who came mm. from Rajasthan, who were on the northwest frontier of India. Yeah, yeah. Right, where all the invaders came. There were about 200 times that India got invaded in its history, more than any other country in the world. And it was my forefathers whose job it was to protect and fight against mm. those invasions, right? And yeah. Yeah. mostly losing battles because they were overwhelming armies, you know, Alexander and others. And so they went to their certain deaths. So there was a tremendous amount of trauma there, but they died defending their people and mm. trying to protect their people, right? Now, fast forward to the present day, what has happened with the warrior mentality in our village, in my family, going back to my grandfather and beyond was... Um, it was really, it became about using the people. It became about abusing the people, right? Mm -hmm. So incredible abuse of the workers, of the women workers, especially, you know, of, uh, 
women in the house, etc. It was very, very abusive. Using that power, you know, over, not power with, not power to protect, but power, you know, to inflict suffering, you know, literally on other people. And so I said, we need to reconnect to our dharma as Rajputs, as warriors. Our job is to actually protect and serve mm. the people, right? Yeah. Yeah. We are given this privilege here, you know, this the, these titles and this land and all of this, uh, you know, prestige. But we're supposed to use that in order to serve. Right. So how do we, we don't have to, you know, let go of that warrior spirit. Yeah. You know, so that's that, but it has to be in service of something noble and beautiful. Right. So how can we be peaceful warriors? And this is a big lesson for me because I've always been somebody who shied away from conflict. You know, I always sought harmony because I mean I can understand why I was I was brought up in this environment of extreme yeah, conflict yeah, and strife. Yeah. My grandfather would stand and yell for one hour nonstop at the, all the women and others in the house, you know, and call them all kinds of things, right? And my grandfather and my father would have these enormous fights with each other. You know, they would be just screaming at each other for for hours. So I grew up with that, and I just my 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 little spirit just craved peace and harmony. You know, I was like my mother in that sense, right? So I just wanted. Why can't we all get along? You know, why can't we just have peace and and harmony? So I became harmony seeking. Mm. Right, uh, which is fine. Harmony is good, but you know, if if you seek harmony in the face of egregious uh, wrong that's happening, or, or that missing the truth, or not addressing the truth, yeah, exactly, not acknowledging the truth. So for many decades, I think I was stuck in that place. You know, it's interesting what happened because both my parents died suddenly in 2019. You know, I had all yeah. these experiences in 2018, and uh, and then in 2019. My father died suddenly in April and my mother died suddenly in August. It happened very, very quickly. And as I went to those funerals, the contrast was incredible. You know, my father's passing was a huge event, right? It was a momentous event, the passing of the patriarch, and he had a huge uh, impact on many, many people. It was a very solemn event, but there were no tears. I had no tears. Even I'm able to cry now, but somehow, you know, I, my sister had no tears. My brother, my, you know, the only person crying was my mother. Mm. Literally, in that whole gathering, you know, hundreds of people. So I said, "Wow!" And then three months later, I saw what happened when my mother, even before she died, and she was in the hospital, and things were looking bad, and I couldn't stop crying. And then mm. I'm on my flight to India, and they said, "Oh, things are bad. You need to come." And I'm at the airport in uh, in in uh, Frankfurt, and my brother says, "Oh, I told her you're coming. She seems to be getting better." And I'm crying at the airport in the lounge, and then I'm crying on the flight. And mm. we go there, and she lasted another four or five days in a coma. We're crying at her bedside, and she died. And the outpouring of grief was enormous. Mm. Nobody could stop crying, you know, for weeks. Mm. And I said, "Wow, I mean, those are two very contrasting." Wow. So at the end of your life, yeah, what will be the? Will there be grief? Yeah. Will there be a kind of relief? Mm. You know, mm. when my grandfather died, there was palpable relief. Mm. People mm. were waiting for years for him to die so that they could inherit the land, so they could inherit the title, so that they could be free, you know. They are, right, without his shadow. Yeah. And what a tragic end to a human life when the, when the sense is relief and there's no grief, right? And so how do we live in a way that at the end there is genuine grief for people? There's gratitude for what you stood for and what you did in your life, and there's grief. And there's grief, and there's love. And, and back, to your, back to the theme of ambition and love, right? I mean, yeah. 
that that people there'll be respect for what you the difference you've made and they'll be caring and love for the fact that you existed and the way that you did it was one that was was loving and caring and healing ultimately right so i think if we can live by the list right and and Mm. work on our own healing then i think we can you know live a life where at the end of it you know you know there's a there's a there's a a poet i think it was kabir or rumi or one of those in india who said that when you are born you know that you're crying everybody else is laughing right the baby cries everybody else the more the baby cries everybody's happy because the baby is healthy that right and at the end you want to live in such a way that you're laughing when you die and everybody else is right yeah yeah and i think that's, that's really uh good guidepost you know to think about how do we and so that for me the last act here is to try to live into these truths that have been given to me through mm-hmm. this experience you know and try yeah. to be try to manifest that to the best that i can you know yeah. and help others come to those certain realizations as well oh very sweet very beautiful that's a good way to end this part of the discussion so raj really appreciate that in this section We've gone through more of your personal journey. And when we have our next session, we'll go through a little bit more of how that's applied to what turned out to be firms of endearment and development of the conscious capitalism movement and and all that followed from that. So thanks for 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 stage one of the two part story audience. If you liked today's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscribe button or to go over to Apple and iTunes and leave Raj and I a message. And thank you so much for Tech Sounds and Tech de Monterey for being our sponsors and producers for this. And we'll see you all next week when we continue in part two of Raj's healing journey and the impact it's had on the world in our second podcast on his book, Awaken. Mm-hmm.